This is episode 54 of the Untangled Faith podcast. Today I'm joined by my friend, Melissa J. Hogan. She joins us with her lawyer hat on to share some of her insights as a lawyer regarding silencing techniques used by churches and Christian organizations. And then keep an eye out if you're in our Patreon group, because there will be a special bonus audio with Melissa in which she gives us an update on what is happening with the lawsuits surrounding Ramsey Solutions. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Hey guys, before we get into this episode, I want to give this disclaimer. Melissa is not acting as your attorney in this episode. This is for informational purposes only. Please consult an attorney if you have any questions about your specific situation. Here's my conversation with Melissa. So for my listeners that have been listening for a while, they will recognize my guest today. Melissa Hogan has been on the podcast several times, Um, but today she's coming uh, as not just as somebody that has experienced hard things related to faith communities, but as somebody who has legal expertise as a lawyer. And one reason why we're excited to have this conversation is because there has been a, a bit of bo- buzz, just a, a bit, a bit of buzz on social media about NDAs. And I, I even, I'm not even sure how to say what it is because there's a bit of wordsmithing going on about whether, um, churches, uh, organizations, faith organizations use NDAs. Um, they may call them something else, a severance agreement, a uh, community covenant. But when, for the purposes of this conversation, I want to talk about it as any sort of agreement that like an employer or a somebody with power, like a pastor or leader or ministry leader would ask somebody with less power to sort of give up their right to speak about their personal experience or what they've seen, um, whether that um, organization would consider it a legal document or not. Um, but often there is a trading of silence for severance. Um, oh, and, that's a good that's a good one right there. Yeah. I mean, sometimes severance isn't even part of the picture. Maybe it's at the beginning of a experience or relationship with an organization where somebody signs away their their right to speak about it. But we want to talk about this because Melissa's seen this in several different areas in her experience as a lawyer. So I would love for you to tell us, Melissa, why do you why why are you okay with speaking about this? What is your background? Why are you excited to have this conversation? Sure. So um, as a lot of people know, we're friends in real life and have walked through a lot of situations related to types of silencing. But the reason why I care about it a lot, first and foremost, is uh, because of my faith and because of my love for Jesus and the fact that God calls us to walk in the light. You know, seeing a lot of things that try to have darkness in the world, um, you know, that is upsetting to me and antithetical to my faith. So my faith, first and foremost, but also I've been a lawyer for almost 25 years. 
I practiced uh, initially in the business field and in regulated industries like healthcare. And in those contexts, sometimes there are agreements like non-disclosure agreements or non-disparagement clauses. So I've seen them in the context of businesses and transactions where those are situations that are a lot different than what we see in faith communities. And then also I have experience as a federal appellate clerk. I worked for a judge on the Sixth Circuit. And in that role, you do a lot of analysis of legal cases where you really look at both sides and you come to a place of, you know, what is the appropriate result here? What right. is the fair and, you know, statute-driven result here? So that that's a way of looking at things that are different than maybe the advocacy side. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I'm glad you mentioned that because not every there's a lot of different areas of law expertise. Not and so just because you're a lawyer wouldn't necessarily mean that you have experience with non-disclosures and non-disparagement, those sorts of things, but you actually have specifically helped write out contracts right. and negotiated these things. So that's good to know. Right. And then I think, you know, when you layer on top of that, the fact of my personal experience where a lot of your listeners will probably understand and remember that, you know, the situation with Ramsey Solutions and my ex-husband, I chose to remain silent for a long time, for a period of about eight months specifically when things were happening because God called me to not speak. And, you know, that was just out of my relationship with him and wanting to honor the Lord and honor my husband and my family. So I chose not to speak, but then I was actually legally silenced via a gag order that a judge put on me. So Looking at all of that, it makes me really curious and passionate about how uh, God views silencing and how they're used in contexts that are abusive and unhealthy. Yeah, I love to have this conversation with you because this isn't like a new thing that you've thought about. You've had personal experience with it and you've spent time writing about it in different places. And so I know you have a Medium account. I know you are on social media as well. So tell us some of the things that you have sort of fleshed out and where where those are. Yeah, so a while back I started writing uh, on Twitter. I, you know, I love Twitter and there's a great, wonderful faith community on Twitter. And I wrote a basically a mega thread uh, compiling lots of different articles and podcasts, and then my own perspectives and experiences on non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements. So I call that my NDA mega thread. <laughs> Maybe you could link it in the show notes. Or yeah. Uh, so I, I wrote that, but then also I've been writing a series of articles on Medium about the legal cases involving Ramsey Solutions. And the reason I started writing those was because I realized, you know, most people don't have access to the legal system in a way that that lawyers do or or don't know how to access it, even though, and we'll talk about this a little bit, the legal system is supposed to be open and public. Yeah. And so I wanted to be able to put things out there where people could access them in a way that really was accessible and public, but also there was a running theme through my own experience, obviously, and then through all of these cases of silencing of ways to silence. And so knowing and and my own perspective that that's not what God calls us to yeah. in living in the light, I wanted to highlight that and then thus it ended up in this conversation. Yes, and you it's sort of a cliff's notes, right? What's so funny is my husband was telling me in if you're listening to this in real time, 
there's a lot people are interested in the legal world right now because of what's happening with our former president right and documents being out there in the world and so lots of people are like oh this is where those legal documents this is where public legal right. documents they say, are oh, crashing pacer. yes pacer. they're crashing the pacer site some people probably think you have to be a lawyer to have access to certain things and that's the case in some ways and it does cost money to access certain databases. Is that right? Yes, some some it does cost money. Uh, Pacer now has, if you uh, don't spend a certain amount, then they forgive it each, okay. each quarter. Yeah. I've now learned, because I used to have to pay each quarter, but then also, especially some of the local sites, um, local courts, it's either money you have to pay, which can get really expensive mm-hmm. quickly, but also some of it is just knowledge. Like how do you access that and who do you call and how do you find those cases? Yeah. Even though they may be public and they may be free. Yeah. Uh, but some of the cases I wrote about in Ramsey, yeah, I had to pay money to access a, a lot of those records, but they're in theory public still. Yeah. And before you, I mean, there is generally some sort of a a headline out there on like the Pacer site that says that this is what it's about, right? Um, like the title of what the documents right. are. And sometimes if people download those, then they'll upload them to Court Listener, yes, which is free, I think. Yes. Um, but when I see a headline of a case that is interesting to me, I often will be like, Melissa, what does this mean? I don't know. <laughs> because so while you might be able to access it freely without being a lawyer, you don't always know like what all these terms mean. What right. What is happening with the case? So I love that you can bring that to this conversation as we're talking about secrecy, silencing. And, and sometimes something will look nefarious until you talk to a lawyer. And I'm like, oh, well, here's what's really happening there. Or sometimes yeah. something will look mild and inconsequential. And a lawyer will go, this is a really big deal. Yeah, look at the footnote there. There's something going on there that is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say there's going to be arguments on both sides that say, you know, if I'm running a ministry, I want to protect some knowledge. I want to protect people. Um, I'm getting a lot of sensitive information um, if I am in clergy and talking with people having access to financial things with giving. So let's talk about uh, how does this work? What are your thoughts about all of the things? Where do you want to start with a conversation about um, secrecy when it comes to faith organizations? So there's really two competing concepts. I like to think of it as sunshine versus silencing. So sunshine laws, people may have heard of the concept of sunshine laws, and they are generally laws that require transparency and disclosure, whether it's in, it's it's most often applied to governmental organizations, but also to certain businesses. And like I said, I had uh, experience in highly regulated industries, specifically healthcare, and they are often subject to sunshine laws. So what they do, they make meetings, records, votes, um, deliberations, or or other types of uh, records or um, meetings and things public, and they allow public participation. They require advance notice of certain meetings. So when you think about your school board meetings or your governmental meetings or your state legislature, there are generally sunshine laws uh, or regulations or policies and procedures that require that to be open to the public and the public to participate. So the reason that that 
that sunshine laws exist is to compel things to be conducted in an open and ethical manner. It's to help prevent fraud and corruption and inequality, frankly, or access to that information. So, you know, when you have transparency, more people can look at what's happening and investigate it and it allows the public to bear witness. And so there, there generally should be few exceptions to things uh, that are under sunshine laws or, or sunshine regulations. And generally, like I said, those apply to governmental organizations and non-governmental and highly regulated. So for example, it's, it's not been that long since there was a law that required physicians to disclose or pharma to disclose payments to physicians. Mm-hmm. So people could see you know, are there physicians that are receiving inordinate amounts of money from industries that could influence them? Another sunshine law is known as FOIA or the Freedom of Information Act. And that allows people to get records from the federal government or there's a lot of state FOIAs too okay. uh, in order to see what's going on. But also another way that sunshine is supported are things like whistleblowing statutes. Mm-hmm. So whistleblowers are then protected from repercussions from them speaking up, and that allows more sunshine in. And another way is to protect the sources of journalists so they can get these sources and whistleblowers and speak it out to the public without being silenced by the subject of their investigation. So that's sunshine on one side. Yeah. And if people have read anything I've written, they'll know that one of my favorite quotes (laughs) is from Justice Brandeis that was on the Supreme Court. Uh, He, you know, has passed away now. And one of his quotes is, sunshine is said to be the best of disinfectants. And what is meant by that is, you know, why do you need a disinfectant? Because you've got some kind of infection, some kind of bad stuff. And that is like the corruption uh, that can happen in the government, it can happen in an organization, it can happen in a person's heart. Right. And you know, the first lie is to yourself. And so sunshine, exposing it to the light, is how you start to disinfect that uh, corruption and infection from happening. So the opposite of sunshine is silencing. And you know- Darkness. Darkness. And the the hard part is, like in that quote, that is what allows that infection or corruption to continue and to get worse and worse and worse. Right. So I want to talk about silencing, but before we get to silencing, I'm going to say if I were a leader of an organization that has found benefit from using some sort of uh, manner to silence people, I am not, I don't think of it as silencing. I think of it as protecting confidentiality. Right. Um, I think of it as uh, protecting people's personal information and protecting the organization so that it can not be distracted by um, other things happening and just keep moving forward towards the mission. So what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> because I, if I use like an NDA or I use a, a severance agreement... I don't think of it. I'm not going to call it a silencing tactic. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to put myself in a silence. I'm not a silencer. Right. Well, nobody wants to say that I a silencer. Am, how do I protect confidential information without being in that like darkness? 
right. category. Right. Well, I think for me that comes into really how I define silencing strategies. Okay. So there is this middle ground. So when I say silencing strategies, I define it in this way. Efforts by a party with greater resources to use their own power and to leverage the power and authority of the legal system to prevent someone with fewer resources from sharing truthful information they otherwise would have a right to share. So when you look at that, you know, there's there's some specific factors. So what that wouldn't then cover and what would reach what your what your point is is if the parties are one have equal power and resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like in the business situations that I was in, these were pretty equivalent. They both had legal counsel. They were engaging in arm's length negotiations, which for people who don't understand that, that means, you know, they weren't being influenced by power and other repercussions. They were making a fair transaction and they had an equal interest in the silence uh, that they were negotiating. So they were trying to, to do a deal that, you know, kept the value of the organization or kept the reputation and what they were, you know, doing a transaction for. So in in your circumstance, you know, an employer and an employee, if, if only one party has an interest in the silence uh, and the other party doesn't, that's, that's unequal. And so that party would then tend to try to use their influence mm-hmm. to silence the other party. But I have heard, like, ministers, pastors... Uh, you know, leaders of organizations say, but really this is to protect them as well because no one gets to talk about it. I mean, this is saying nobody's nobody's going to say anything bad about anyone. No one's going to speak about the situation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, that, that gets into something, a, a feature that we often see in efforts to silence people. And I would call that more of an obfuscation that they're trying to say we're being paternalistic and we're trying to protect them. Well, if that person isn't saying I I want that protection, you can't really say that that's true. And, you know, sometimes there's also a third party interest in the transparency. You know, in some cases, both parties may want to cover up what's going on or they may come mm-hmm. to an agreement, but there might be a third party interest in that being transparent like in court records. Um, where the public should be able to see what's happening. But when you mention confidentiality, yes, there are things that should be confidential. And when you are dealing with a situation like that, the most appropriate thing is to identify exactly what that is. So be specific about be it. Be specific and the rationale behind it. So, you know, in this in the definition that I created for silencing strategies, you know, at the end it was well, here, let's go through the, the, the parts of okay. the definition. So again, going back to the definition, I said it's efforts by a party with greater resources to use their own power and or to leverage the power and authority of the legal system to prevent someone with fewer resources from sharing truthful information they otherwise would have a right to share. So at the beginning there, a party with greater resources, that's that can be their power, their influence, whether that's influence in the community, spiritual influence, greater financial resources, almost certainly in the case of um, an organization or an employer or a church, 
you know, they often have more power and influence than, yeah, than I an see, individual. I see that happen where the timing, well, can you talk about murders and acquisitions that you are a part of? There is not like one party is blindsided into all of a sudden somebody's handing them something that they have to figure out if they're going to sign it right then. Right. Or it's all, it's all over. And so I think that's the difference here is that in a lot of these situations that I've seen in regard to churches and ministries is that these sorts of agreements are used when somebody is being uh, terminated mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily have any heads up that they're going to be terminated. Right. So they're brought into an office, told their job and their income is ending sometimes immediately and their benefits immediately. And then they kind of frame it as, but here's our what we want to we want to offer you this gift. If you were to sign this agreement, we you will have so much more severance. Your insurance will last a certain amount of time. You know, a certain amount of money is going to come in for a certain amount of time. So power may have to do with like the time, the timing of a situation, right. and knowing you know having time to even process what's happening. Well, and here here are some patterns that I see if. If silencing is being used in an unhealthy way, there are generally three things that you might see. And the first is an ambush. I call this the pattern of AOL. Okay. You might see an ambush. So that's like firing an employee who want, you know, at one point had they had an income, they had health insurance, and all of a sudden they don't. And they say, we're going to be really generous. And here's a severance for you. And here's the agreement you have to sign for a severance. But they don't note the fact that there's a paragraph in there that says basically you will never talk about anything that has ever happened here and never say anything bad about this company forever mm-hmm. that's in that agreement. So they've created this situation where you are pressed, you the employer are pressed, and then they say, here's how we're going to help you and solve it. That's an ambush and that's not equal bargaining. That's not equal power. Uh, another example of an ambush was in my own case, I went into a hearing uh, in my divorce on parenting time and was ambushed by the attorney for my ex-husband who was apparently in league with Ramsey Solutions and starts into a diatribe um, about me and says, we want a gag order or we want to put a protective order over this whole case. Mm. There was no, in legal cases, you would normally have to have a motion for that. You would have to file a motion and then each party would be able to make arguments about that and present evidence. Uh, But that didn't happen at all. They just came in about a totally different topic. Wow. And said, we have three board members from Ramsey Solutions in the hallway prepared to testify. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, you know, my attorney and myself had to be really quick on our feet and go, wait a second, this is not, this is not up, up for the court's consideration. But then the court actually ended up uh, putting it in place anyway, um, without any motion or argument, just the argument of the lawyer. So that's the type of ambush. So that's the A yeah. in AOL. Yeah. The O, obfuscation, which I already mentioned. It could be concealing information or lying about the reason for the silencing that they want, acting like it's a gift or a benefit for the party when really... It's a loving gift. Right, really you're trying to get their silence, you know. Uh, In my case, there was a lot of lying about the circumstances 
that they were they're trying to make the case for that gag order. So that's the O, and the L is leverage. They're trying to leverage their power and influence. So in that circumstance, they might attempt to use friends or other influencers to press their case about the silence. Some examples of that, if you remember when Dave Ramsey sent the letter to Bob Smetana after his article, and he said, I've sent this to influential pastors in the area yeah and it was copied and asked for employees to call him or email him you know a similar example is you know people being blacklisted so in the harvey weinstein uh, sexual abuse case Mm -hmm. in hollywood you know part of the leverage he was using was you won't ever be able to get a job here yeah and similar to that was when the cto of ramsey called your husband's and, and a couple other gentlemen's new employer. Yeah, yeah. And said, if they are going to do this to us, they're going to do it to you. So it's using that leverage. So an ambush, obfuscation, and leverage are usually the circumstances you would see in a way that's using silencing in an unhealthy way. That does illuminate the power dynamic at mm-hmm. play there. Uh, because like the employee or the, the member has no idea it's coming. <laughs> right, right. So they wouldn't be able to, I mean, all of a sudden they're faced, they're in a situation where they have to think quickly about something that they have no information, like no, right, no like background to even understand. And so in thinking about that leverage issue and uh, in, in using this definition of silencing strategies, it's, you know, they could either implicitly or explicitly use the legal system. Mm-hmm. So things like a cease and desist letter that you you yep. received and yep. friends of ours received. That's, Although it did not say cease or desist. Right, right. But it's that you better stop doing whatever this was because yeah. it wasn't anything. But it's, you know, that wasn't through. And a lot of people don't even understand that, that a letter like that is not actually a court case. It's not actually anything in court. It's like, I'm going to sue you if you don't. Do yeah, this. it's that we might do something to you. We don't like what you're doing. We want you to stop. Uh, but there's no like actual legal teeth to right. the letter. Right. Or they're using their power and influence in the community or the faith community to create basically a big scary monster that you better do what we want uh, or we're going to do this thing to you. Or they could explicitly use oh, the legal yeah. system, which is like in gag orders or protective orders in cases or NDAs that say if you tell anybody we have a right to go after you and do this and this and this. That's, you know, I just thought of this. I hadn't thought of it before. I don't know why. But I think there is something that sort sort of taints somebody if you say, well, that person, we sent them a and d or they're under a gag order, or it, it makes it seem like they have done, that party has done something right. wrong, where that isn't necessarily the case at all. It's that imbalance of power and that accusation. When you look in the word, Satan is the accuser. Hmm. And so when you've got a party going, they're bad, they're doing all this stuff, they're trying to take us down, they have a coup going on, you know, that is that accuser. And that's that feeling that, have I done something wrong? You know, and, and you really have to slough that off and stand firm in the Lord when you know all you're trying to do is to speak the truth 
and to expose things that are yeah. not of him. I'm going to play um, devil's advocate here, just giving some examples that I have heard in, in having some conversations, interactions with um, some pastors where they said, we never intended to enforce it, or this person never actually signed it. We weren't going to do anything with it. Or in the case of Ramsey, having Ramsey leadership saying, it was just a shot across the bow. Right. Well, then right. you've got it, intent and you've got impact. And in the compassion of Jesus, what we should care about is our impact on people. Because if we're trying to show them who Jesus is mm -hmm. and what that love looks like, if we do something that we think is just normal, but is ends up being harmful to someone else, we should care about that. You know, now may, maybe there's not legal responsibility, but we should at least care. Yeah. So to say, you know, we didn't intend for them to take it that way. So let's look at that situation. An example of a church that uses an NDA that says you can't speak about anything that's happened here forever. And they go, well, I, I, that was just in a form that our lawyer gave us and we would have never or meant. our third party organization that does right. our payroll for us but meanwhile the impact on that person who has signed this agreement because they needed that five thousand dollars in severance they look at this and say well i'm i'm legally obligated here maybe they took it to a lawyer and the lawyer's like yeah you're you're not allowed to talk about anything that happened here i don't care how bad it was or what you so you know that impact is harmful on that person and they believe that they that of course a legal document would be enforced against them because that's how it works otherwise why would you have someone sign it right so for an organization to say well we didn't intend that maybe they didn't but really their the biblical response would be man i i gotta own that we we put that in the agreement we're responsible for what's in that agreement even if we didn't um you know draft it didn't intend we're responsible for that and you know what we release you from that yeah and that's never what we intended you can speak about anything and in fact if you have things that are negative that happened we want you to speak about those because we want to be an organization that is transparent and is in the light and we want to remedy any harms that we've been a part of so that we can be refined to be a light for Jesus that sounds like a dream. I mean, it sounds like an impossible dream mm -hmm. that that would happen. Yeah, sometimes I, I think it is. So you've gone through some of those elements of your silencing strategies. We've talked about the power, the implicit and explicit threats. Um, what other elements are there that we haven't gone through? We talked about leverage and mm -hmm. what that might look like. And then looking at someone with lesser resources. So by resources, again, I mean whether that's lesser power, influence, you know, in the community or spiritually, lesser financial resources. And that's often what it comes down to is that the, the other party has greater influence, people, financial resources, and the, the other person does not. Now, let's say you have a very wealthy, well-connected financially resourced and legally resourced congregant, that might be a different story. Yeah. But that is the very, very rare exception because, you know, I'm a lawyer. I have legal knowledge. 
But if I'm in a in a situation with someone with much greater wealth and influence and spiritual authority or that they pur- purport to have spiritual authority, there's still an imbalance of power there. So that's what I mean by someone with lesser overall resources. And then it's from sharing truthful information. Mm, mm-hmm. So people should always have the freedom to share truthful information. And the guard against that is the law against slander. Um, you can sue somebody for slander. It's not a crime. Right. So it's not a crime, but you can sue someone for, and slander, people miss use that term all the time in faith communities. Slander is false information. Right. So to speak something negative about someone is not slander, unless it is false. So saying something negative, saying your opinion about someone is not slander, saying you, your experience with them, you know, truthful things, none of that is slandered, no matter how bad it makes them look. In fact, I would argue that that stuff should be public. Yeah, yeah. Because if it's bad stuff they've done or impacts on other people, people should know that and have a right to know that. Yeah. As long as it's truthful. Yeah, so a church or an organization would not need to have somebody sign some document to keep them from saying, keep that person from saying something that is untrue that would harm the organization because there are laws that already exist that protect Correct. against that. Correct. And the last part is that they otherwise would have a right to share. So people generally, because of the the First Amendment, that relates to government though. So people often think, oh, First Amendment, right. Well, that's the government can't stop you from sharing it. But people generally have a right to share truthful information. Now, we can talk about the wisdom. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I remained silent for about eight months because God was calling me to remain silent. So we can talk about the wisdom. Now, it's hard to judge somebody else because you don't know what their situation is about whether they speak up or not. So I try to be deferential about when people choose to speak up or not speak up. But whether they have a right to speak up, they don't have that right in certain circumstances that are specifically prescribed. Because like we said, there should be narrow exceptions to things being in the light. And that's like privileged information. That's like a, a, a pastor and a, a, congregant or a priest coming for confession. Yeah. That's uh, a therapist and a client. That's a lawyer and a client. And even those, there are some exceptions where like lawyers have to speak up if their client has told them they're going to commit um, a certain level of crime or therapists have, they have to speak up if their client has said they're going to harm someone. So even though, even the exceptions have exceptions. Yeah. Um, So beyond that, especially as the body of Christ, we should not be silencing people that are going to speak truthfully and otherwise have a right to speak up. We'll be right back after a quick break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about the Untangled Faith Patreon community. The Patreon community is the primary way this podcast is funded. As a thank you for their support, my patrons receive access to bonus audio that doesn't get shared with the public. And the bonus audio I've shared over the past year is all there. Today's bonus audio is a conversation with Melissa Hogan in which she gives us an update on the lawsuits surrounding Ramsey Solutions. You don't want to miss it. You can access all of this by going to patreon.com slash untangledfaith. That's patreon.com slash untangledfaith. Now back to the show. What if I signed something and I now I really regret it? 
because I mean, are there laws regarding how you handle a an agreement like that? Do you need to give somebody a certain amount of time to review it? Uh, I don't know because I know you're not like working with it day in and day out. Like There's now, I'm feeling like, man, I made the wrong choice and I shouldn't assign that thing. I'm saying that hypothetically. Right. We didn't sign anything. I mean, there's there's the legal implications, and then there's the practical implications. So if you haven't signed something, it depends on the state. Like, a lot of this is, is pretty much state law. Yeah. Depends on the state. Some states do have laws about how long you should have the right to consider something you've signed or a right to rescind. Generally, that's in things like credit and stuff like that. But practically, from a business perspective, an honorable uh, business that's ethical Yes, should give you a period of time, at least three days. Yes. And should encourage you to have a lawyer look at it. Again, to try to create good faith, arm's length negotiations. And negotiations would include, hey, I don't like this part. Can we change this? And actually negotiating, not just like, well... Right, you should be able to push back and say, hey, can we take this paragraph out or change how this is? And if you don't feel like you can... That's often it, that displays an imbalance of power, yeah. an imbalance of, of the ability to leverage either legal authority or you know different kinds of power. Yeah. So if if they pressure you, um, that's not not ethical. Um, so it depends on what kind of organization you're dealing with. And the hard part is is you're often crunched in that situation, and you know what do you do? If, if you're in that situation and you're being pressured yeah. and you need that money. Now, let's say you did sign it and now you're in a situation maybe a year or two later and you're like, man, I wish I had not signed that. And you know now I would just for- have forgone the $5,000, which is easier said than done when it yeah. includes insurance. Yeah. But what you can do is you can take a copy of that agreement to an attorney uh, and you can have them look at it and advise you on what you can do. And, you know, maybe, maybe you could at some stage say, can I give the money back and come out of this agreement? Or, you know, there's the practical side too that yeah. you look at. If you, and there's a lot of examples of people breaking NDAs in Harvey Weinstein's case, uh, in other, especially sexual assault cases, but in yeah. other cases of, uh, abuse or abuse of power because you know they signed those in a lot of cases under duress so that's actually a defense so here's what actually happens so if you have an NDA that you were under or some kind of if you signed an NDA and you spoke out so you it depends on how you would interpret it you spoke out in a situation where someone might argue you broke the NDA well they would then have to sue you in order to you know, depending on what the agreement said, to get damages from you, or they would try to get a, a temporary restraining order to keep you quiet from then on. And so the question is, practically, would that organization do that? If they are a church or, you know, what type of organization, practically, are they going to, to sue you to then keep you quiet? Yeah, that's not the legal answer, <laughs> but in a lot of cases... They won't, especially if you are speaking out yeah. about something that is one, really bad that they've done, yeah. um, abusive, and two, if you've got receipts, <laughs> if you have evidence of the situation that you're talking about and you're speaking out for the benefit of other people, especially not for your own benefit, 
you know, I would say it's it's difficult for them to try to then go silence you. Yeah, they don't look real good right? if they do that. That is like right. the opposite. Because a lot of this, like you said, you've said in the past, is unhealthy organizations like to do these things in the dark. Right. They want these things signed. They don't want people to know about it. Um, so they certainly don't want you publicly. They don't want to publicly fight that battle because then what it's all about, the thing that they didn't want to happen to start to begin with is happening. It's like their worst nightmare is happening. Right. Right. Then people are actually talking about the fact that they're trying to silence people (laughs) while you're actually trying to speak out. So, I mean, a lawyer's not going to want to say to their client or in a consultation, go break your NDA. Right. So the disclaimer here is Melissa is not speaking as your lawyer right now. Correct. This is not, not legal advice. This is just for informational purposes. Talk to your own lawyer. What if I can't, what if I, I don't know how much a lawyer costs? I'm, I don't even know if I can have a consult. Tell me how expensive it is for if I wanted to have somebody read over and give me some thoughts on my NDA. Is that going to be really expensive? It depends. If you know somebody who's a lawyer or if, if somebody does offer a free consultation, they often won't look at the agreement itself and give you advice. But even just an hour of a lawyer's time, it's not even going to take an hour, especially if it's a lawyer that may have dealt with these kinds of situations or who specializes in um, speaking out or whistleblowing. So you'd want to look yeah. for lawyers who specialize <laughs> in whistleblowing, speaking out about abuse situations, if that's what you're wanting to speak out about. And so they'll know the law off the top of their head about how this works. Now, they may not know the law for your state yeah, or the so state that your, covers that agreement. Your best bet would be to go to somebody that has some like current, ongoing like interaction with understanding how NDAs work, silencing agreements, whatever right. severance agreements are. And that way, it would not be a big deal for them. They wouldn't have to do a lot of research to figure out what are the laws. Right. Because they... And I've, I've seen offers of lawyers that don't actually charge anybody anything for that, like, one-hour conversation. Now, not everybody is able to do that, and they probably have only a certain amount of time available in their life to do that. But also, there are people available out there to help. Yes. Like, it's, that help say, I would love to help subsidize a retainer or a the first couple hours of your conversation, billable hours of whatever conversation. Yeah, I've so, seen that. I've yeah. seen that. And I, my philosophy as a lawyer may be different from other lawyers. My yeah. philosophy is I want to tell my client or, or the listeners, here are the risks. Here's the situation you're in. Here's, you know, kind of how the law works in that situation. And here's the the legal, financial, and actual risks of making this choice to to do X or to do Y. Right. I'm not here to tell people, here's what you should and shouldn't do. Like a good therapist. Right. You know, I say, here's the risk. You have to make the decision considering your own life. I mean, I might make a recommendation depending on the facts of a certain situation, but in the end, the client has to make the choice. And some people, they're absolutely willing to take that risk in order to speak out how averse you are to risk will probably uh, indicate what comes next. Right. <laughs> um, and your tolerance for risk is going to depend on the stage of life you're into, like where your emotional, physical, spiritual health is at the time. Like, and it may also depend on other things that have come out yeah. about that party. So like by the time people were speaking up about Harvey Weinstein, you know, by the time there were a couple people that said, hey, I was under an NDA and I'm now speaking out, 
there is power in numbers. Yeah. And so what you see is the more people who have the ability to say, this is the pattern I experienced, and that pattern holds true over person after person after person, there becomes a tidal wave wherein people say, you know what, I'm going to take those risks because we're going to take those risks together. Yeah. How do you find each other if you're under an MBA? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. The internet is a great place. There are themes, you know, whether someone has been silenced by an NDA, by a faith community, or a powerful Hollywood person like Harvey Weinstein, whether they've been silenced through a gag order or, you know, a protective order, there are communities that are talking about this issue. We talk about this issue on Twitter all the time. Uh, You can find, like I said, my NDA mega thread connects to a lot of different people who are writing about it or speaking about it. And, you know, the issues really are the same, no matter who the party is. I wonder if there are lawyers out there that at a certain point, they're getting a certain number of interactions with people from the same place. Yeah. If how that would work if they were to, I don't know, find each other some way. You know, the lawyer can't divulge somebody's confidential information. Right, but that lawyer then can go to the party Mm -hmm. that is using the silencing strategy and say, you know, I have this client or I have this number of clients that are under this type of NDA that you have. And specifically putting it back in a faith context, that faith organization or purported faith organization should feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit that says, it is not my job to silence people from speaking, one, the truth, two, that they otherwise have a right to say, and that I should welcome in order to refine our organization. NDAs have such a bad connotation now that people don't use that word. Right. A pastor, you know, the pastors are saying, I don't use an NDA, I've never used an NDA. And the next thing you know, like you're asking questions about other illegal things, and they did, or their organization has had people sign things that traded their silence for severance. Right. The, an NDA is not just something that has the label at the top, non-disclosure agreement. Which Although I've there is, there is a specific definition of a, but we're talking more broad. One of the problems with this conversation is that the definition of NDA is confusing. In fact, Boz Chavijan just tweeted about this yesterday. He said, I think there are many misunderstandings regarding the definition of an NDA. A non-disclosure provision is different from a confidentiality provision. One prohibits disclosure of any facts related to the underlying abuse, and the other prohibits disclosure of the settlement terms. So that's what Boz had to say about the confusion surrounding the term NDA. So for the purposes of this conversation, we are using Melissa's definition of silencing techniques. Right. It's More broadly. A, non, a clause or an agreement that prevents someone from speaking truthful information that they would otherwise have a right to speak about. So this is the words I should use when I'm asking, because I have gotten tripped up by even using the word legal, because they don't consider it a legal document. Right. Or they won't answer whether they consider it a legal document. It could be an attachment to a a severance agreement. A pastor would rather invite me to their church than answer the question of whether they use these sorts of agreements. Right. It is bonkers. Yeah, I mean, the things that people don't have a right to speak of, you know, you can be specific about those in an agreement. Yeah. To, to the extent that you're not specific, yes. that is, you know, 
that feels to the person less powerful, that's a power move because then you have the power to say, well, I didn't mean that. Yeah. And, you know, I can make an exception for you about this. A lawyer that knows their way around these sorts of things would say the problem is overbroad um, language that says, like, any and all. You are, right. you are forbidden from talking about any and all instead of saying really specific. And so overbroad in that topic-wise and also when it comes to time-wise. Right. So in business contexts, it, there's generally a finite period of time for your legal obligations, whether that's, you know, for say like a, a non-compete agreement, you know, a reasonable period of time is a, a year, maybe three years. So even in a non-disclosure, there could be circumstances where you, you don't ever have a right to speak like trade secrets. Yes. Uh, and there's some state laws generally about trade secrets or, um, you know, uh, designs for things. But another risk is that an employer might try to say, well, all of that is a trade secret. Everything that happens in our company is a trade secret. Every word we say inside the building is a trade secret. Or every everything is confidential. And that's that's just not true. Yeah. That's again that goes that goes to the obfuscation. So we have talked a little bit about how some people very specifically define these things. If you ask about an NDA and they don't call it an NDA they're going to say they don't use it. And so if you want to know if they're being used in this context that you are thinking of joining, being a part of, what are different ways that these sorts of things look? What are they called? How are they used? Like if if they're not going to call it an NDA, what might they use? Yeah, I mean, it might be in your employment agreement. It might be in the policies and procedures. It might be in severance agreements. Uh, so if you're looking at an employer, it would be really helpful to talk to former employees and to ask these questions in your employment interview. You know, do you use these types of documents? Or if you're going to a church, if you're looking at churches, knowing whether a church uses uh, agreements that keep people from speaking about things that may have happened there. Now, they may not tell you that they do. If you are too afraid to ask about those, that should be a red flag to you that there is an imbalance of power. Yeah. And of course there's going to be an imbalance of power between an employer and employee, but a healthy employer or a healthy church should actually welcome questions about those things and welcome the conversation. So there's the agreements like that, whether it's, you know, that have non-disclosure or not. And we didn't really get into non-disparagement specifically, and that is saying anything bad or that could be perceived negatively about an organization or a, per, a person. And that can be completely if it's true. Yeah. And those are really dangerous. And I would argue really that any kind of non-disparagement clause is antithetical to living in the light and a biblical call. Because to say you can't ever say anything negative about our organization or our church, about your pastor... That is not living in the light because if people do things, you should speak about it. You really should. Yeah. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, what business is it, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So God calls us to speak about things that are wrong 
inside the church. It's not just we're permitted to. We are called to do yeah. that. So if you're in a situation where they're saying you shouldn't disparage, um, that is inconsistent with right. the Bible that I read. And it's not just complaining. We're talking about, it's not just a difference of opinion we're talking about or like, I don't like so-and-so. It is like this experience happened. It is harmful. I mean, you wouldn't need to like share every right time you didn't like something. Well, that's, you know, that, that calls into the weaponization, both of, you know, protecting the image of the church, but also the use of gossip. Oh, yeah. And so if... If an organization or a pastor or a church is wet, and, and generally it's only happening in faith communities, healthy businesses are not talking to their employees about gossip. They just aren't. So if they're weaponizing gossip to say they're harping on the issue of gossip, that's often used to keep people silent about things that are wrong. Yeah. And really, we should feel our own conviction from the Holy Spirit about what gossip is. And it's generally untruthful information, and it's information being shared to show that you're in the know, yeah. not for any other purpose. If you're, if you're sharing that information for an actual purpose, to warn other people, to inform other people of things that are wrong, to hold people accountable, to refine the church, not gossip. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, maybe someday we can talk about the fact that uh, there actually are rights that are protected for employees to be able to talk to their coworkers about their working conditions. Yes, the EEOC has some great guidance. Um, that's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has some great guidance about the things you're allowed to talk about as an employee, and also the things that employers are not supposed to talk to you about. So employers are not supposed to ask about your marital status, um, your whether your spouse works. They're not supposed to ask about um, your sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. um, and so for employers to weasel their way around those things is one, generally not legal. Yeah. <laughs> and two, certainly not ethical. Um, but, you know, along with non-disparagement and non-disclosure agreements, I've mentioned a little bit gag orders. Mm -hmm. And that is generally when uh, a party uses the legal system to prevent people from speaking. And obviously that's what happened to me. So then in that, again, situation where I was completely not expecting it at all, then for the next seven months, I couldn't talk to my family members. I couldn't talk to my friends. I couldn't talk to you. Right, right. And up until then, I hadn't really told you hardly anything of what was going on. Right. And I then couldn't tell you, here's what's happening. And, you know, that is that can be really harmful. That is often used to isolate people yeah that can be very harmful emotionally that's certainly not uh living in the light to say we're going to gag you and keep you from speaking about things that are truthful that you'd otherwise have a right to speak about and it used it's often used to break people down to keep people from talking and finding community and support it's often used in cases uh, it was used in the Larry Nasser case, I believe, early on. There was a gag order on the sexual abuse survivors. Mm. So you'll see these situations that are that there's a pattern in how this stuff is used. Another um, that seems more innocuous are protective orders, and that's the theme that I saw in all the Ramsey cases uh, was using essentially sealing a case so the public can't have eyes on things that are happening either in the case, so things you file. Or, you know, there's some legitimacy in the fact that 
in a high profile case, having it where the parties can't share everything they're learning in discovery. So there's an exchange of what's called discovery of information, and that's not filed in the court filing, that's exchanged. And, you know, often there is a protective order over uh, discovery because you haven't got, you know, you, yeah. you shouldn't always get to try something in the public opinion or, you know, in the public sphere that's not yet been tried in court. Yeah, that makes sense. But then where a protective order comes in is if I'm making this uh, motion and I have to attach some of that in order to support my motion uh, for what's happening in this case, then if a party goes, oh, no, 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 we want to seal all that so people can't see that. That's generally not appropriate because you, the public should have a right to see what is happening and why a court comes to the conclusion that it does. And that's the whole aspect of public records and sunshine is so people have a right to examine. German, journalists have a right to examine mm-hmm. and look at this and say, is this right? Is this consistent with other situations? Is something bad happening here? And put eyes on it. So a protective order covering all of that. And that's what I saw consistently in the Ramsey cases. Our protective orders, not just over discovery, but over you know most of the things and the and you know some of the filings that would have discovery protective orders even where the the client on the other side was not allowed to see it that only the lawyers were allowed to see it wow um, which I would say it disempowers you from actually being able to participate in your own case um, you know they tried to put a protective order in in my divorce case when we subpoenaed documents from them. And it was it was the same. It was overly restrictive. Yeah, I remember that. I was there in and that hearing. I went back and said, "No, here's what we would agree to," and we never resolved it. So then it was never under the protective order. But I think some of the problems we're seeing is because the church has really been leaning on the business world for their cues on how to grow and how to operate. Maybe it goes back to Bill Hybels, um the global leadership, you know, the, their leadership summit, everybody was trying to learn from, you know, Willow Creek, how they did things. It became this business situation. And so, you know, businesses use NDAs or maybe, you know, they end up with asking, you know, the people that they are asking to be on their elder board or their governing board or business people that this is the world they know. And so if I'm going to give the, the, um, benefit of the doubt, I'm going to say it isn't always meant to be a nefarious thing, but now that they know, now that people know the problems that they are, they can cause the harm that these silencing things are, I would say it's time to make a difference. It's time to make a change in how you do these things. So you've thought through like, is there, should we be using these? What is the problem? What are the problems with using these in faith communities? There are many. Yes, there, there are many. And, And speaking of the global leadership summit, when we look at a, a situation and say, are they drawing more from the business world versus drawing from the word hmm. and our call as believers in, in even from like their description of the job of pastor? Yeah, like if, that word cloud. Right. If the word cloud, there was, somebody did a word cloud of the um, job advertisement for a new pastor at Willow Creek. And if you look at all of those and there's more characteristics of the business world than the fruit of the spirit, that is a problem. Yeah. Um, But especially, I mean, Jesus is called a light in the darkness. 
In Matthew, we're called to be the light of the world. First John, we're called to walk in the light. And so there's a unique problem with using silencing in faith communities over and above problems that might exist even in non-faith communities, like in Harvey Weinstein. It was bad enough there. Right. But over and above that, in faith communities, you know, we look at, I draw from places like Psalm 82, 2 through 5. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. Wow. So, you know, when we look at an imbalance of power, as believers, we are supposed to come and on the side of the one with less power. And that powerful person that um, is walking about in darkness, that should not be whose, whose side we're on. Or, for example, you know, Ephesians 5 For you were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is in the light that makes everything visible. Wow. There's a lot. The scripture has some things to say about I think God operating has a lot to say about light. operating in the light. Yeah. I'm getting the impression that you have a, a, an opinion about whether <laughs> churches, um, religious organizations should use these silencing techniques. So if you were to ask me, is there any legitimate purpose in a faith context to yeah. use silencing strategies. I would say if the parties are of equal power and resources with an equal interest in something remaining confidential and there's no third party interest in transparency of that information. That's the limited situation. Otherwise, I would say no. There's no legitimate purpose for the use of silencing strategies in a faith context. Thank you so much for listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast. I would love to keep the conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook and Faith Untangled on Twitter. For more information about supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. This is where you can find today's bonus audio with Melissa. You can also find show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. A special thanks to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is primarily funded by them. Thank you also to producer Michelle Pionic. And thank you to all of you for being the best listeners. I hope to see you next week, but I just tested positive for COVID. So I'm planning to rest and hoping to have a quick recovery.